0: We return here, and I wanted to just begin by asking, asking a question. Do you, consider yourself, do you consider yourself to be a, a pessimist or, or an optimist? Um, are you more like the kind of person that has a tendency to expect the worst, uh, or are you someone that has a tendency to look on the more uh, favorable side of things? Uh, I had a conversation with someone this past week that I had never, uh, never met anyone that was confused about the, uh, when you use the phrase, the cup is half empty or the cup is half full, that they didn't know which was the Negative side of that and the positive side of that, so uh, I had to kind of explain that. And, and, and he said, "Well, I guess it depends on what's in the cup." I mean, you know, what are, <laughs> what, are, what are we talking about? But he said, "Yeah, all, all my life I've heard people say that." You know, yeah, the cup. You know, that's just he's seeing the cup half half full or half empty. And he said, "I never never knew if that was a good thing or or a bad thing." Um, but uh, some some believe that um, Christianity is is a somewhat of a crutch, and what I'm, what I'm getting at regarding pe- pessimism and optimism is simply that Solomon is really not either of these. Solomon is a realist. I mean, Solomon is coming face-to-face with the realities of life. Uh, when we consider uh, Christianity, some people think that, that Christianity is is just sort of a crutch for us to, to lean on. The truth of the matter is that when you address those fundamentals of, of life, when you address issues of origin... Uh, and where we came from, or issues of meaning, uh, who we are and why we are here, morality, how, how we should be living our lives, and destiny, the direction of history, and the question about what lies beyond the grave. The Christian worldview is actually the most sensible, the most coherent, and the most consistent of all the perspectives out there, as well as one, one that corresponds the most with what I would say is reality. In other words, Christianity to me is really dealing with the, the, the reality that we experience uh, every day of our lives. In other words, we could say it this way. No other religion or philosophy meets the realities of life head-on more than the Christian faith. And then I would say this. I would add to that. Maybe no other book in the Bible meets the realities of life head-on more than the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, so far, we have been uh, examining what Solomon had to say later in life about his pursuit for meaning in life under the sun when he was younger. And when we say younger, we're not talking about a young man in his teenage years or even a young man in his 20s, but probably a man of middle age. Uh, we've talked about how you know, the, the, the books of, uh, of Song of Solomon and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes sort of sort of play out uh, sort of chronologically that the Song of Songs was was written uh, at, a, at a time in um, it describes marital love. It describes romance. It describes a time in Solomon's life when he was uh, probably in those uh, those years in his his twenties. Uh, probably went on to write the book of Proverbs or many of those proverbs in his middle age years, in, the, in his thirties and forties, and then went on this pursuit for the meaning of life and. Uh, Later in life, he pens uh, this particular book um, and describes those pursuits as a middle-aged man. Uh, We've seen how he described his determination to find satisfaction in both wisdom as well as in or through the experience of evil and foolishness, or we could call it mad mad folly. Uh, At first, Solomon thought that the pursuit of wisdom, academics, uh, intellectualism would give him all the, all the answers, but there were so many things in life that Solomon discovered that he could not straighten out uh, or that did not add up, uh, that his his quest ended, in, uh, ended up in failure. Uh, he then turns to morality, uh, but this only adds to his sorrow and his vexation. So he attempts another pursuit, uh, the pursuit of pleasure, uh, he says, basically, if, if wisdom, if his pursuit of wisdom ends in, in, ended in sorrow, then maybe self-indulgence would lead to lasting and happiness. And so he he went down various paths in his life, and we talked about these. We described them as dead-end streets, uh, these pursuits of, of pleasure uh, in his life. He, he went experimenting, uh, searching for lasting enjoyment through a number of things, and we outlined these the last time we were together. Uh, searching for lasting enjoyment through, through jokes, through laughter, through the effects of alcohol, uh, personal projects, uh, building pools, uh, constructing uh, fragrant uh, parks, uh, possessions, power, influence over others, relationships, sex, music, and entertainment, all of these things, but in the end realizing that though many of these things are gifts from God, we would go down that list and say, yes, many of these things are not inherently in and of themselves evil. Uh, So even though many of these things are gifts of God, and even though many of these things do give us some measure of joy in life, they were never meant to provide a steady and inward satisfaction. We'd say this, they have no ultimate gain in themselves. One writer said this, good pleasures are like watermelons used to play soccer. They are good in themselves, but will splatter if we try to use them to score a goal. So God has given us many things, uh, but he never intended for us to look to those things in and of themselves to satisfy our hearts. So we'll see how some of that comes together at the end of, uh, we'll get through chapter, chapter two today, and we'll see what he has to say at the end of that chapter about God's God's good, good gifts. So when we live for these things alone, Solomon says we, we eventually reach a point of diminishing returns uh, when there is little or no enjoyment, uh, only discontentment, boredom, and bondage, uh, and that all of these interests done for self will turn out to be idolatrous. Uh, another way of putting this is to say that, that chapter 2, verse 10 and chapter 2, verse 11 do not contradict each other. He says in verse 10, All that my eyes desired, I did not refuse them. I did not withhold my heart from any pleasure, for my heart was pleased because of all my labor, and this was my reward for all my labor. Thus I considered all my activities which my hands had done and and the labor which I had exerted. And behold, all was vanity and striving after wind, and there was no profit under the sun. So in one verse, he's saying, My heart was pleased. In other words, there was a... There was that moment when I did these things, when I finished that project, and we talked about this, you know, when you, when you start a personal project, and, and that moment when you finish the project and you sort of stand back and you look at it, there's this moment of satisfaction. But what Solomon is saying is that that's it. I mean, that moment of satisfaction, that's the extent of the satisfaction, which allows him to go on and to say that when he looks at all of his labor, that behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. So both of these things are true. Solomon enjoyed all of these things at the time that he did them. It was only afterwards, upon reflection, that he realized that it was vanity, that it was, it was like a soap bubble. It was temporal, uh, lacking substance, and in some cases even perplexing. So today we pick up in chapter 2, verse 12, and he says here, so I turned to consider, or, or literally, t- I turned my full attention to, or I, we might even say it, I faced the facts. I, I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. And again, madness and folly are not, he's not listing three things. It's really two things. Wisdom, and then that's why I said instead of madness and folly, just it could be mad folly. Okay? So I turned to consider wisdom, madness, and folly. For what will the man do who will come after the king except what has already been done? It's as if Solomon returned to look uh, at something that he had considered before because these, these things that Solomon's about to talk about, he's already said something about those things. And so it's, it's as if he's looked at this thing, and then he, he comes back to it and gives it a second look. It's exactly what we do sometimes when we're looking for something that is missing, right? We first look in the logical place uh, to try to find it, and, and then if that fails, then we look we look elsewhere. We look in other places, but if we still can't find what, what we're missing, then we usually circle back where we began and look more carefully, right? It's like, we, we, we go to the obvious place, it's not there, so then we start looking around and then we go, okay, if it's not there, maybe we need to go back and retrace our steps back at the very beginning. That's essentially what, what Solomon does here. Uh, he returns to consider wisdom and mad folly. And he states here that both, of his, experiments, both his experiments and his conclusions are, are definite. In other words, there's, there's no need for, for a further test uh, because nobody searched out these matters more diligently than, than Solomon did. So what what kind of person, it's as if Solomon is saying, what kind of person could come after me uh, in the matter of what I've already done? Um, h- how would my successors handle the same kind of investigation? C- could they do a better job than me? And, of course, they, they couldn't. Uh, and it's not really a boast. I don't think it's, it's not, a, it's not Solomon saying, nobody can do it like I did it. You know, it's, it's not as if, so- this is not a, a happy section. I mean, this is for the, for honestly, the first two chapters of Ecclesiastes are, are what cause people to not go any further. <laughs> it's like they read the first two chapters and they're like, bummer. I mean, negative, 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 negative. And then they, they have this impression of the entire book that it's going to begin that way, it stays that way, it ends that way. And that's just not the case. You almost have to push through those first two chapters. So it's, it's not a boast on Solomon's part. It's, in a way, it's, it's a lament uh, that the fact that in spite of all of Solomon's exhaustive and detailed investigation, he didn't find lasting satisfaction and he didn't discover the answers to many of life's questions. So he continues in verse 13, And I saw that wisdom excels folly as light excels darkness. The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walks in darkness, and yet I know that one fate or one event befalls them all. Then I said to myself, As is the fate of the fool, it will also befall me. Why then have I been extremely wise? So I said to myself, This too is vanity. For there is no lasting remembrance of the wise man as with the fool, inasmuch as in the coming days all will be forgotten, and how the wise man and the fool alike die. So I hated life, for the work which had been done under the sun was grievous to me because everything is futility and striving after wind. So here, here Solomon considered things from, from a different viewpoint. He, he looked at his wisdom. He, he looked at his, his work. He looked at his wealth. And in all these things, he looked at them in light of the certainty of death, and he considers the question: What good is it to be wise and wealthy if you are going to die, and leave everything behind? So this section is—it's about death. It's about death and the certainty of death. Uh, it's a topic that Solomon will return to uh, many times in this in this book. Uh, it's a topic that's very hard to avoid, honestly, if you are looking at life. Uh, As we know it under the sun, uh, because it's an obvious fact of life. I had a conversation this uh, this past week as well with uh, Andy Mayfield, and some of you know know Andy, uh, and he's been in our church for a number of years. Recently, he and his family moved up to the North Georgia Mountains, and uh, are getting plugged into a church uh, up that way that's closer to their to their new new home. but uh, Andy does consulting, and we had, we had breakfast. We were talking about his, uh, one, of the, one of his clients, one of the, the, the um, companies or organizations that he spends a lot of time with is the Cancer Research Institute in Nashville. And so he's had to go in. He's doing consulting as far as their whole structure and, and patient care and the experience of the patient from the time they come in to the time, you know, uh, all the way through and how how, how the the staff interact with these patients, and and you, and you realize that a lot of the pe- that the people that are coming to do this are a part of trials. They're a part of of um, various kinds of treatment, and and some of these are, uh, I mean, we would probably go, why would you subject yourself to those kinds of things? But in some cases, these people are uh, some of them are terminal. I mean, there's that they're within two months of dying, and there's no possibility that they're going to survive, and so they try these different forms of medications and treatment on them, just the people sub- are willing to do it because they're just trying to help research. They're just trying to help provide solutions and answers. But it's interesting because Andy was talking about he's been having to engage some of the, uh, some of the people that are sort of at that executive uh, level of this, uh, this organization. And one of the guys that he uh, had interacted with was a believer. And he was talking about how this, this guy... Uh, It's a struggle. It's a struggle because uh, this guy's talking about all the advances in treatments and and medications. And and he said, you know, they've gotten. This guy told him, he said, you know, we've gotten to the point where we can. We have figured out how to um, take uh, antibodies that are already in your in your body that attack, you know, uh, intruders, attack foreign foreign things in the body. We've learned how to actually put the treatment itself sort of at a cellular level in the antibody, so that when the antibody goes after the cancer, it does it at a cellular level. It actually attaches to it, and it's like it, it becomes a host. The, the, the antibody becomes a host for the chemotherapy, in a way, and some of these treatments. And the guy said, I mean, that compared to what we were doing just 10 years ago, I mean, it's, it's amazing how far we are advancing in those things. He said, but here's the, here's the, here's the thing. He said, we, we're, we're discovering those types of treatments And he said when patients get those kinds of treatments, he said it's amazing how well, I mean, how fast that they begin to improve. He said, but it's just a matter of time, and the body finds a way to basically isolate that antibody and to come up with a defense against that antibody so that eventually, within a matter of months, that solution does not work. And so... Andy and I were just talking about the futility of the world we live in. It's like we cannot, no matter how much research we do and how many advancements we have, we cannot get around death. We cannot undo the curse of sin. And so it's this balance of... You're, you, you're merciful. The reason you pursue these things in some cases is just mercy. I mean, you, you want to show mercy to people that are suffering in those kinds of ways. And yet, as a Christian, and what this guy was telling him is as a Christian, you still have this worldview that's informing you that no matter what we do, we cannot undo this. I mean, we, we cannot save ourselves uh, in, in these kinds of ways. You, you, you cannot ignore and you cannot undo this effect of the curse of sin. And so Solomon Solomon considered his wisdom and he asked if both the wise person and the foolish person pers- the foolish person die what is the value of wisdom anyway And his answer was that all other things being equal wisdom is still of greater value than folly uh, it is it is still always better than the alternative Back in verse 13 he says it essentially in this way they they are as different as night and day I mean if you want to compare wisdom with folly, they're, they're as different as night, night and day. And we understand this. In fact, he uses this night, day, and light-darkness analogy. And we understand that because we know in our own lives that it's much easier to get around when the lights are on uh, than when the lights are off and, and we're in the dark. So Solomon says the wise man ha, has, has a useful perception of life. Uh, he can see that death is coming, uh, and he can live accordingly. Uh, As opposed to the fool, uh, the fool, on the other hand, walks in darkness and stumbles through life and is caught unprepared. And yet, being prepared for death doesn't necessarily relieve the burdens that we experience in life. Because, let's just be honest, it takes us a long time to learn how to live, right? I mean, we're still learning how to live wisely. And so we, we spend our lives learning how to live in a wise way, but then just about the time we figure all that out, right, what comes? Death comes. I looked it up last night. Roughly two two hundred 233,000 people die every day. That's two every second, uh, which means that one out of every 113 in the world died last year. So they say now we're, we're, we're probably, you know, I mean, you have to look at the demographics, but, I mean, it would be like saying, listen, we have, say, a church roughly of 500 people, that in the next year we're going to have four deaths, four or five deaths, that four or five of the people in this church are not going to live beyond this year uh, as, far, as far as the, the av- averages are concerned. Uh, I, I also researched some, some of the most notable deaths in the last several weeks. This was just, I think, going back as early as uh, the beginning of May. It was interesting I looked at this massive list of people that have died in the last 6 weeks and these were by by their definitions notable deaths. And 99% of these people I have no idea who they are. I mean, it's like these are notable deaths. I mean, I, I didn't know who these pe- I'd never heard these people's names before. Morris Wilkins. Anybody just Okay, just just on the lighter side of things. Uh, he was an American entrepreneur. He invented the heart-shaped bathtub. Notable death, right? I mean, wouldn't wouldn't you love to go down to history as that guy? (laughs) You're on Wikipedia because you created the heart-shaped bathtub. Anyway, Dusty Rhodes. All right, now we're talking. Raise your hand if you've ever even heard of Dusty Rhodes. Okay, all right. Bunch of rednecks. All right. (laughs) Dusty Rhodes. I remember him as a kid uh, in uh, the professional wrestling world, American Hall of Fame professional wrestler. Uh, Sir Christopher Lee. Now, now we're getting up a little bit more, maybe some more familiar. British actor, uh, voice artist, singer. Uh, Dracula, The Lord of the Rings, Star Wars. Those were all movies uh, that he either starred in or or did voice uh, for. B.B. King, uh, blues guitarist, singer, songwriter. John Forbes Nash, which I didn't, I didn't. The name at first didn't stand out, but he was an American mathematician. Uh, laureate of the Nobel Prize in Economics in 1994, subject of the movie A Beautiful Mind. So if some of you may be familiar with that, that particular movie. Elizabeth Elliot. Okay, now we're talking notable. <laughs> Elizabeth Elliot died this past week. I think, uh, I think I saw that on Sunday or maybe Monday this past week. Uh, missionary, uh, incredible story. She passed away at the age of 88. Uh, Mark McCormick notable death some of you don't know mark but that was the uh fa- father of three um three boys uh, we had his funeral here a week sat saturday was it was a week ago um so you know uh y- 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 you have to grasp what solomon is saying here solomon is saying death is the ultimate trump Death is the ultimate trump. Death is the ultimate equalizer of sage and fool alike. No matter how wise, no matter how foolish, death is the ultimate trump. It is no respecter of persons. Uh, Even though people go through life desperately trying to deny the reality of their mortality, yet they are haunted by death just the same. So in spite of the fact in our culture... That people seem to to grow steadily better off. Uh, they aren't getting happier. Uh, in fact, I also looked up most uh, right now, and, and well, this was back two thousand fourteen. The top prescription drug by sales in the United States in two thousand fourteen, Abilify, seven point two billion dollars, uh, which can which is used for uh, you know I mean it's it is used for uh, uh, treatments for um, uh, autism. It's used for treatments for for schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, but the, probably the most common thing it's, it's just it's used for is treatment of depression. So it's just interesting that our our culture outwardly everything seems to be getting better and better and better, and yet people seem to not be happier, happier, happier. Uh, in fact, they're they're leaning more and more on things to to help them deal with their anxieties and their fears and depressions. And I would just say that that even though people seem to be growing steadily better off, that one of the reasons why people are not necessarily becoming uh, happier in their lives is because of this baseline anxiety and fear in their hearts concerning death. Sooner or later, everyone comes to the same shocking realization that one day I am going to die. One day I am going to my lungs are going to exhale their last breath one day my my heart will beat one last time and then i will face god and everybody has to deal with that everyone no no one gets gets around that and for the most part solomon says in verse 16 that when we die whether we have been a wise person or a foolish person death has the power to erase the very memory of our existence. So he says essentially for the most part we are forgotten. So we can go down that list of hundreds of, of names, notable deaths, and we don't know who these people are. We we don't know them. Uh, for the most part we are forgotten. Sometimes people try to sort of compensate for that or to overcome that problem with earthly achievements. They think, listen, if I just if I can do something in this life, if I can make my mark, if I can achieve certain things that then my memory will, will go on and last, and yet it seems that death still wins out in the end." Uh, Woody Allen acknowledged this when he said, quote, "I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying." End quote. Alexander the Great once, once found his friend and famous philosopher Diogenes standing alone in a field looking intently at a large pile of bones. When Alexander asked him what he was doing, Diogenes replied, I am searching for the bones of your father, Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Because at that point, there's not a lot of difference, right? So whether we are rich or poor, wise or foolish, Solomon Solomon says here that death will bring an end to every advantage that we have in this life. And with that in mind, Solomon says in verse 17, So I, what? I hated life. I hated life. It's a pretty strong statement. <laughs> I hated life. Now, it probably, I think it, he's, he's, he's saying, essentially, I was, I'm disgusted with it. Um, I'm disgusted with life. Uh, I don't think a faithful Christian would ever say that, and, and, and just as a blanket statement, that and ultimately, I don't think a true Christian would ever say that finally, that I hated life, uh, no matter how difficult the circumstances might become. Uh, based on 1 Peter chapter 3 and Psalm 34, the Christian should love life. We should love life. Uh, we may not enjoy everything that we experience. We may not understand everything about life, but we should be the ones that put the most into life and get the most out of life to the glory of God. And notice he doesn't say that he hates God. <laughs> that would be different, certainly. He doesn't, doesn't hate God. He, he hates life. He, he's simply speaking honestly about his, his fatigue, his, his desperation, um, with no relief under the sun. <clears throat> He's just saying that there was this time in his life when he was, he was pursuing all of these forms of pleasure, and he was pursuing wisdom, and he was pursuing morality, trying to find lasting satisfaction, and he came to the end of all of those dead-end paths and streets. And he said, when I came to the end of all that, I, I hated it. I, mean, I was frustrated with what I discovered. He's speaking plainly to us and to God without denial and manipulation and exaggeration or pretense. And God can handle him saying this. It's it's like those expressions in the book of Psalms where the psalmists just cry out to God and they say things and we're like, could they be saved and say that? Yeah, they could. (laughs) I know many people that are true Christians that say those kinds of things. And it's not always, it's not, that kind of talk doesn't necessarily reveal a lack of faith. Or indicate spiritual immaturity. In fact, a God-fearing preacher in his maturity can say these kinds of things. So Solomon here is, is, is speaking with candor. We might even call it wise hatred. Wise hatred, not not foolish resentment. Solomon knew that there was something more than this life, and he was fully aware of how he had lost the joy of life and that the joy of the Lord's salvation needed restoring. And he had since been restored. And so remember, this is Solomon at the end giving us a testimony about this stage of life when he was on this pursuit and in this search. So in these first two chapters, Solomon is reflecting on his folly and comparing it with true wisdom. And he's doing, in some ways, exactly what his father David did. Back in, you're familiar with Psalm 51, a psalm of confession and repentance in David's life after he he committed adultery with Bathsheba and was restored to the Lord. And he says there in, in Psalm 51, verse 10, "'Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit.'" Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will be converted to you. So what we have here in Ecclesiastes is Solomon on the back side. I think Solomon is restored at this point. And now he's doing what David did when he was restored. He is teaching transgressors so that others won't have to experience all of the things that he experienced. Or as David says, I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. This is Solomon's way of saying, let me share about what life was like when I was in sin and then, what, and then about that restoration and about the lessons that I learned. Let me teach you transgressors so that you won't have to experience those things. You can learn from my example and in your life, maybe you will be converted. You will be transformed. Then notice what he says in verse 17 about his work. He says that his deeds and his accomplishments were, were grievous or severe, bad. Uh, it could even be translated evil. They were distasteful and worthy of, of tears. And this is life under the sun. The reality that everything is worn out and groaning in creation along with our aching human search for empty gain and drink in nature, in laughter, in, in sex, in work, in affirmation, and music, and money, uh, thinking about the harm that people do to one another, thinking about the plight of human beings, the eventual loss of everything worked for, the prospect that no one will remember us. This state of things grieves Solomon. He watches the news, we might say, and weeps. And we read the news and we watch the news and we weep. Again, this is one of those touch points that as Solomon is saying this, everybody on the planet can identify with what he's saying about humanity here and about the condition of the world that we live in. We bury our children. People are brutalized. And, And even when a person is caught in his wrongdoing, often the system slowly crawls along. Years go by. The victim has to relive and retell the story over and over again. Meanwhile, the perpetrator watches movies, enjoys food, receives visits from their family, and completes an educational degree. Is that not frustrating? (laughs) I mean, do you guys not get a little frustrated with the way things are? With how upside down it seems that the world is, the culture is, the system is. In the play, the stonemason by a Cormac McCarthy. He writes these lines: "The rain falls upon the just, and also on the unjust fellas. But mostly, it falls upon the just because the unjust have the just umbrellas. The rain falls upon the just, and also on the unjust fellas. But mostly, it falls upon the just because the unjust have the just umbrellas." Zach Eswine said this, quote, We hate that what God created good has become like a rusty, nailed playground, no longer fit for kids at play and cutting the skin of those who try. And the world groans, not only because of other people, but because of us, right? I mean, we have things that frustrate us as far as the other people in our lives and the things that they do and the things that they do to us, and yet we also have to admit that, and we understand why our neighbors also tire of us, right? <laughs> in other words, um, the things that agitate us about other, in other people's lives, we agitate other people. I mean, we don't, all, we don't like to think about that. But our neighbors also tire of us with, with our own ability to inflict them with what is not life-giving and loving and truthful and gracious, So Solomon considered his wisdom, and he testifies that being wives gives us no immunity under the sun. Trying to pursue the virtue of wisdom doesn't mean that cancer or dementia or a flood or a broken heart will not come to us. Tornadoes do not choose to hit only the bad houses. Uh, Even the very wise can scrape their knees or need a dentist or be sentenced to death unjustly upon a cross. So Solomon says, why, why live as a wise man or a wise woman if it will not alleviate our poverty or enable people to listen to us or guarantee justice or our advancement or change the fallen conditions of this world? Why not just be rich and foolish and loud and honored and listened to instead? And his answer is because wisdom by nature is good and brings us closer to the gain that we need. Uh, Wisdom, though it may not change everything around us, changes us. Wisdom testifies to the character of God. Wisdom is is something that God loves. God loves wisdom. And because folly will never have the last word. So Solomon considered this. He considered his wisdom and concluded that though wisdom is no savior, it is certainly better than folly. And then he considered his work, not just his wisdom, but his work and his wealth. Verse 18. Thus I hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. And notice he's, he mentions this phrase under the sun back in verse, in verse 17, but he, it will be five times here in these verses. I have hated all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun, for I must leave it to the man who will come after me, and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the fruit of my labor for which I have labored by acting wisely under the sun. This, too, is vanity. Therefore, I completely despaired of all the fruit of my labor for which I had labored under the sun. Uh, literally, he, he turned his own heart to despair by obsessing over life's work. In a sense, becoming, becoming the, the worst enemy of his own, of his own happiness. Verse 21, when when there is a man who has labored with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, then he gives his legacy to one who has not labored with them. This too is vanity and a great evil. For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days his task is painful and grievous. Even at night his mind does not rest. This too is vanity. So here's here's the picture. Work, work, work. <laughs> Think, compete. Strategize, plan, sacrifice, travel, worry, skip vacations, add hours, increase responsibilities, invest, save, risk, work, work, work some more. (laughs) Then when you have everything in place, wham, death comes. And knowing this, Solomon says that he is frustrated with and disgusted with his work and his wealth. Regarding his wealth, he realized that he could not keep it, verse 18, uh, that he would soon die and he would leave it to his successor. The old, uh, old Jewish proverb says there are no pockets in shrouds. Uh, and, and we know that there's, that there's nothing inherently sinful about money. Uh, money is simply a, a medium of exchange. Uh, unless we spend it, it can't do a lot for us, right? We can use it to buy food, but, but, but you can't eat it. Uh, You can use it to pay for your natural gas bill, but the money itself will not keep you warm. A writer in the Wall Street Journal called money, quote, an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and as a universal provider of everything except happiness. All of the advertisements say satisfaction is guaranteed, but God says that if we put our trust and hope in our wealth and our money and our material things, dissatisfaction is guaranteed. So Solomon realized that he could not keep his money. He also realized that he could not protect it. Not only must we leave our possessions and our wealth behind, but we do so without a guarantee that the people who end up with our stuff will not waste it. What if they are foolish? what What if they tear down everything that we have built up? And in some ways, this is what Rehoboam, Solomon's own son, did, right? I mean, you could, read it, you could go to 1 Kings, in, in, in 1 Kings chapter 12 and read about this, how Rehoboam did not listen to the, the older counselors, the elders of, of Israel, but he listened to the young counselors, and he, he kept oppressing the people, and as a consequence of that, he squandered what, he had, what had been given to him, what he had inherited, and for that, he lost ten twelfths of the kingdom for that. Solomon also realized how difficult it was to truly enjoy money and enjoy material things. Uh, We spend so much time thinking about our money and our possessions and worrying about what will happen to it that we that we make our lives miserable. Solomon says that his stuff caused him more grief and heartache than brought him pleasure and meaning. You have to figure out what stuff to buy. You have to figure out how to pay for it. You have to figure out where to store it. You have to figure out how to protect it. You have to figure out how to make others appreciate it. You have to figure out how to maintain it. And you have to figure out who is going to get it when you die. It's very consuming. (laughs) And all of this can bring restless days and sleepless nights. Right? Isn't that what he says? For what does a man get in all his labor and in his striving with which he labors under the sun? Because all his days... His task is painful and grievous. Even at night, his mind does not rest. Solomon, you know, Solomon didn't, only wrote a, a few psalms. One of them is Psalm 127. I thought this was, is interesting. In Psalm 127, and you're familiar familiar, I think, with this. In verse one, he wrote, "Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain." It is vain for you to rise up early and to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, for he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. <laughs> it's like, I wonder when Solomon wrote that. Because <laughs> that sounds like a guy who has been, it sounds like that's something that he would have written at the same time he wrote Ecclesiastes. Looking back and saying, listen, you can do all that, you can work and you can strive and you can labor, but unless you have the blessing of God on your labors, it's nothing, it's vanity. Interestingly, he uses the same term, right? It's vain. It's vain. It's vain unless you have God's blessing. Solomon says we we need God's blessing on our labors and our striving. We need to trust the Lord. We need to to fear the Lord and to walk in His ways, he says in the very next chapter in Psalm 128, and that our own self-centeredness robs us of joy and rest. So to summarize, Solomon says death trumps wisdom. Yes, there is more benefit to wisdom than stupidity. Wisdom does protect. Wisdom gives strength. It it gives joy and illumination and a measure of success in this life, but it is limited. Wisdom does not exempt us from the mortality of Genesis 3. One fate, death, will grab the fool and the wise, and there isn't anything that we can do about that. So death trumps wisdom. Then he says death trumps wealth. Again, nothing wrong with having things and enjoying the fruit of your labor, Listen, go, go, and ha- go and get yourself a Jimmy John sub today. I'm not against that, okay, or whatever else you want. Go buy yourself a new shirt or whatever. That's fine, but remember that you are stewards at best, stewards at best, and your wealth does not affect your mortality. So Solomon appears to be a little pessimistic, granted, but then notice where he goes next. He says, death trumps wisdom and death trumps wealth, But God trumps death. God trumps death. Verse 24. There is nothing better for a man than to eat and drink and tell himself that his labor is good. This also I have seen that it is from the hand of God. For who can eat and who can have enjoyment without him? For to a person who is good in his sight, he has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. While to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting so that he may give to one who is good in God's sight. This too is vanity and striving after win. It's not this. It's not eat, drink, and be married, for tomorrow we die. That would be be fatalism, not faith. He says, eat and drink and tell yourself that your labor is good. And thank God for what you do have and enjoy it for the glory of God. And not only does Solomon say that, that that these blessings in your life and in my life, not only are those things gifts from God, but the enjoyment of those things is a gift from God as well. He says it's an evil and a tragedy when a person has the blessings of God but cannot even enjoy them. I mentioned early in our study that, uh, that Ecclesiastes was, was read typically in the synagogues during the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles, which was one of the three pilgrimage fe- festivals in which the Israelites would make an annual pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Jerusalem which makes complete sense, right? The Feast of Tabernacles was a time of thanksgiving. It was a time of great rejoicing for God's provision. A time to not only recognize the good gifts of God, but to remember that even the ability to enjoy the provision of God is a gift from Him. Not simply to say thanks for the food, but to say thanks for the food and the taste buds and the good digestion. You know, thank you for the gift, and then thank you for the ability to enjoy the gift. We should seek to please the Lord. We, we should trust Him to meet every need. And God promises to take care of us when we walk in wisdom and fear Him. We need to acknowledge His gifts, to use His gifts wisely, to enjoy His gifts properly. He says, verse 26, not so with the sinner, right? The sinner can heap up all kinds of things, but he can never truly enjoy them because he has left God out of his life. In fact, though though it doesn't always happen this way, sometimes the wealth of the wicked ends up in the hands of the righteous. Even Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Some have said, It is fine to have the things that money can buy, provided you don't sacrifice the things that money can't buy. Well, Solomon has presented the problems of life under the sun, things that seem to prove that life isn't worth, worth living, the monotony of life, the vanity of wisdom, the futility of wealth, the certainty of death, and all of these things, again, paint a pretty hopeless picture. And life is hopeless if we're looking at this all from a, just a human perspective. And you'll notice that God is not mentioned from chapter 1, verse 14, down through chapter 2, verse 23. Uh, Verse uh, 23. But when you view life through the lens of truth, everything changes. So Solomon is not some shallow optimist with rose-tinted glasses. Uh, He isn't a skeptical, skeptical pessimist wearing blinders. He is a realist that takes a balanced view of life and death and helps us to look at both from God's eternal perspective. And when you see the world in light of the grave... Two responses are required. The first is hatred, this sort of frustration and and disgust at the way things are in the world around us. we, We notice the futility, but the second is enjoyment, and we need the spiritual skill of both. I found this interesting. When, when asked about what he would do if, if he knew that death was imminent, Martin Luther allegedly answered, "If I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree." <laughs> if tomorrow if I knew that tomorrow the world would go to pieces, I would still plant my apple tree." So what do we do? Well? Uh, some would sit down and weep, waiting for death to come, maybe even hastening death for both himself and the tree, mocking, saying that nothing matters, that morality uh, is made up and that there is no such thing as a future. Uh, the cynic would see through the irrelevance of those who strive after the world's fame, riches, and works. They would, cynic, the cynic would stop distracting himself with accomplishments, accept the meaninglessness of the world, lie down on a park bench and get some sun while he has the chance. The hedonist would identify uh, joy with self-indulgence and make pleasuring himself the goal of his vain life. He would cut down the tree, make a fire, cook the fruit, invite friends over and party all night with them. The pietist would pay no attention to the apple tree and leave it to decay, would run to his closet and pray, understanding that eternal matters are in the balance but believing that attention to the physical and bodily matters is a waste of time. The escapist would romanticize the vanity under the sun, convincing himself that things aren't really that bad, that pain and tears aren't warranted, that everything is neat and tidy, distracting himself with the spiritual jargon and nice songs and telling you that your tree and your soul will both be fine. But the preacher of Ecclesiastes differs from all of these responses. And what does he counsel us to do? To plant your apple tree for the glory of God. To plant your apple tree. To taste the sweetness of ordinary joys. To realize that sanctification doesn't depend so much on changing our activities as it does on doing them for God rather than for ourselves. To cultivate a moment-by-moment way of living by being occupied with the joys of God in our lot, the lot that God has assigned to us, but amid the realities of life under the sun. Some of you are familiar with Corey ten Boom. Uh, In her experience in the concentration camps back in in Germany or in Holland, in her book, The Hiding Place, she spoke of grateful joy with God amid the horrid tortures of her concentration camp. And she says there that she and her sister learned to give thanks for the fleas that they had (laughs) because the guards wouldn't go to the flea-infested place. But God did. God was there. God met them there. And interestingly, they t- they tenaciously gave the Lord thanks as they relished, relished, relished him and each other in, in a very hellish place. And so Solomon says, plan your life. Listen. Plan your life. Listen to your spouse. <laughs> Hold their hand. Help your kids. Try to do what you love as you were able. Do it with all your heart, even if you are doing something that is beneath your expectations and your dreams, love one another, take care of your home, work, fear the Lord, trust God, all these things. So it's this reality that death is coming, but then we don't just say, well, it's futile, we just don't need to (laughs) to give up on all these things. No, it's embrace that death is coming and that you will give an account to God and then go plant your apple tree and enjoy life. Enjoy the good gifts of God and realize that not only are the are the gifts blessings from him, but the ability to enjoy the gifts that God has given is a blessing. Ray Steadman said this, Isn't it strange that the more you run after life, panting after every pleasure, the less you find, but the more you take life as a gift from God's hand, responding in thankful gratitude for the delight of the moment, the more that seems to come to you. So, I think... The application is somewhat straightforward today. Are you prepared? <laughs> are you prepared to die? <laughs> Someone said only that those who are prepared to live are those who are prepared to die. And sadly, some people find out at the end of life that their ladder has been leaning against the wrong thing. Uh, Paul wrote several words that open up, I think, a perspective that can help us to love life instead of hating it. Colossians 3.1 one. Therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on the earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. There is wisdom and there is life beyond the grave. We will not ultimately be forgotten, but, but we will be remembered for all eternity. Our lives are protected. All of our memories are safe with God in Christ. In fact, this word hidden, he, Paul uses here is crypto, which is where it forms the basis for our, our English word encryption. It's essentially saying our lives are encrypted with Christ in God. God so preserves us in his Son that nothing essential to who we are will be lost forever. God will remember us. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of chapter 2. And this this sort of conclusion that Solomon comes to at the end of chapter 2 is something that we'll come back to because it's also – it's it's a summary – it's some summary statements that Solomon makes in several places at the end of the major sections of the book. So we'll – these themes will continue to pop up uh, as we go through. Um, But – we are, I say, to some extent, we're through the, probably the most difficult part of the book. The, the two first two chapters, I think, are, especially from an interpretive standpoint, probably the most challenging. So uh, we've gone, gone through that, and I will pick up in a very familiar passage, probably one of the most familiar of Ecclesiastes in Ecclesiastes 3, uh, where he talks about God's providence and sovereignty and a time, a time for this and a time for that. Uh, and we'll work through that the next time uh, together. Okay? All right, folks. Thank you for your time. (laughs) Have a great day.